I'm Jason Concepcion. This is Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. We are your guide to the galaxy from Trantor to Terminus to Anacreon. Space is huge. Space is vast. We aim to make it smaller, make it brighter, and add some, hopefully, really interesting context to everything that you see on the show. This week, we're joined by showrunner and executive producer David S. Goyer and co-executive producer and writer Jane Espenson to talk about episode three, The Mathematician's Ghost. Welcome, David and Jane. How are you? We're great. Fantastic. Time, yeah. By the way, everybody, spoilers, 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 spoilers. There will be spoilers for episode three. If you have not watched The Mathematician's Ghost, go do so now. Come back to us. I promise the podcast will still be here. I'm going to do a, a short recap on what we just saw on Trantor. 400 years before the events uh, that we've seen previously, we see an aged Cleon I, the original, watching the construction of the Starbridge and ruining the fact that he's old and he's not going to get to live to see its completion. We fast forward to 19 years after the Starbridge attack, which we saw at the end of episode one. The genetic dynasty is at the cusp of a new generation. Old Daddy Dusk. He wants to go up to the wreckage of the Starbridge and and salvage the legacy of Cleon I. Brothers Dawn and Day, after a nice supper, they take him up to see it one last time. Uh, And a new Dawn is born from its birthing tank, and Old Dusk is disintegrated. On Terminus, the Foundation is taking root. They, of course, discovered the mysterious vault, which over time has... It's become a part of the landscape to them. Salvor Harden, who we meet here, notices that the null field which protects the vault, uh, something like that, it is expanding, (laughs) and this is potentially threatening the town. And that's not all that is threatening. Anacreon Corvettes are approaching the planet. Wow, that was quite the summary. I tried to to move through it. No, but but it was was well told. Uh, David Jane, who else is in this uh, writer's room? Uh, I got to work primarily with Lee Dana Jackson, who is awesome and who uh, I immediately fell in love with him. Um, and uh, that was largely who, who was on staff at the same time I was. But David, you had a whole slate of people before I even got there. A writer, look, writers are the people that start from nothing, right? Mm-hmm. They're the people that actually have to sit down and say, well, how the hell is this actually going to work? And so I like to think of of the writer's room as like a baseball team. And you've got different people with different skill sets. And 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 the secret sauce is sort of trying to pick those people and figure out how they're going to mesh and work together because they do need to work together. If they don't, everything destabilizes. And so um, there, I think there's an art to assembling a great writer's room. Lee Daniel Jackson came in. We have another wonderful writer named Liz Pong, uh, Victoria Morrow. Um, in the early, early days, uh, we had this sort of six-week uh, brainstorming session. Saladin Ahmed came in, who's a oh, wonderful yeah. writer. Yeah, Great and comic book stuff as well. Great comic book stuff, yeah. But also I brought in writers that um, you know certainly hadn't worked in science fiction before. I brought in writers that worked in comic books, writers that worked in short stories, writers that were primarily playwrights, mm. uh, because I think it's important to sort of um, mix it up. And and the one thing that I didn't want was five other me's. You know, I want people to argue with me because I wanted the writer's room in a weird way to be like a microcosm of the foundation. Uh, so... 
We promised we'd talk about the vault, which we saw briefly um, previously, but now is a part of our world. It became known as the vault. And over the decades, countless myths grew up around it. It was an ancient artifact left by aliens. A surveillance outpost sent ahead by the Cleons. All the settlers knew for certain was that the vault wouldn't allow anyone to approach it. And so, they kept away. Now, I know you can't spoil anything, but in the show, uh, obviously, all anyone seems to know about it is that it has this field around it that causes anyone who gets too close to pass out, potentially to their death if they remain in this field. Um, what was the thinking in the writer's room when you were, when you were talking about the vault and the, and the null field that surrounds it? A version of the vault exists in the books. It's called the time vault. But I was also determined to sort of, in the same way that I built maybe Gale out as a point of view character, I was really determined to build out the vault and and be a bit more ambitious with it. Jane, what's your take on it? Well, you know, I joined the project late enough that a lot of those big decisions had been made. So the vault was already hovering there uh, when I walked into the, to the project. Um, I've always been intrigued by the fact that they thought to call it a vault, mm. um, that, that something about it which isn't obvious to me as a viewer, but to them, something about it suggested vault. And I, I find that suggestive and interesting. Did you talk uh, at all about, like, because I keep thinking, I followed this grand genius across the galaxy. He has, he has made this unbelievable prediction. He can make predictions with incredible accuracy. Why didn't, he didn't know about the vault or did he? Or did he? Yeah. Like how? But did see, you... that's what's interesting, right? Yeah. They're like, here's the thing. He, his plan was to get XL to Terminus. He he knew what the conditions on Terminus were like, but he didn't just plan that. He he planned where they would land. Yeah. And he had them land on the doorstep of this thing, so. What What's interesting about it, and, and hopefully the audiences are asking these questions, and certainly the characters in the show are, is, is if he didn't predict that this thing would be there, that's really weird. Yeah. But if he did, why didn't he tell us about it? Because that's also really weird. We find our way into this kind of like intergenerational handoff of a mission through Salvor Hardin played wonderfully by Leah Harvey. Um, she, her entire life is this reality here on Terminus, this foundation that is uh, following in the footsteps of this man she never met. Um, what was behind the decision to, uh, the creative decision for the time jump to jump forward into, into the midst of, of Salvor's like adult life and where she clearly has a lot of responsibility to this community. I mean, this was always going to be one of the thorny issues with adapting the books were these time jumps. And I just, from the very first meeting, even long before Jane came on the scene, I said to Apple, buckle in. 
we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna sometimes we're gonna jump forward thirty years. Sometimes we're gonna jump back four hundred years. Yeah. People, the, our our audience is just gonna have to embrace it. And uh, you know, there are two characters uh, in the show that aren't played by actors. There's the vault, mm. and there's time. Ooh, and time's a character. And I just said, and we got to introduce that character, episode three, and and people just got to suck it up and embrace it. Jane, anything there? I was just struck by you talking about intergenerational handoff when that's also what's happening in the Empire story. One of the things I love about the show is the way the stories thematically reflect each other, and that's one I hadn't even thought of. Um, but you've, you'll find that over and over again when you when you start think, t- taking these apart and looking at the mechanism is is how beautifully things speak to each other. And well, also the mural, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the mural is is this sort of depiction of the empire's feats, you know. And one of the ideas is the mural is a teaching tool for dusk to teach dawn you know, about the business of empire and about their great feats. And, and one of Dusk's signature, signature tasks is is to paint, the, like, the current events on the mural. One of the other things that's happening in the show is that all these different characters are are thinking about their legacies, right? Yeah. And they're thinking about... This episode is so much yeah, about legacy. Yeah. They're thinking about centuries and millennia, yeah. and they're like, how can I affect change beyond my natural lifespan? You know, what does legacy mean? And then what does it mean if you try to buck legacy? Mm. The other issue between Salver and her parents in this episode is, as you alluded to, she's like, well, I never met the guy, Harry. Yeah. I've just been living on this cold planet for 30 years, dealing with Bishop's Claws and other shit. I, my job is to keep people safe. And, and the plan is just this weird abstract thing that is never going to impact my life. I'm glad you said that because I think that my initial response to Salvor when when we meet her is she is present in a way that not a lot of other characters are in the sense that they are concerned with their legacies, with these memories. There's the opening narration from Gail talks about ghosts and how every house has them, especially the, the, the Palace of the Empire. Whereas Salvor is like, is this... Is the force shield working? Are the bishop claws mm-hmm. around? Um, is this kid safe? Are they walking too close to the null field? Yeah. Uh, Jane, talk. Who is who is Salvor? I love Salvor. She is pragmatic and grounded, like you're talking about, and um, more comfortable with action than words and people, but smart. Uh, uh, able to crack a joke without cracking a smile, <laughs> like like I I I like that kind of character, and you don't normally see women as that kind of character. Um, it is a, a very classic. These are traits that are generally attributed to men when I don't think that men have sole ownership of those. Mm. So I, I was very happy to to get to write Salvor. We were always cognizant of the fact that, like Jane says, Salvor exhibits these traits that are often commonly attributed to men. We were aware of that, but also it was important to me that we also have a character on the show that feels like the layman, that just doesn't really think about whether or not all this planned shit. Like, you need characters like that in a weighty show like this. 
who just roll their eyes at all this gobbledygook right. Harry or the Empire or whomever are talking about. Right. It's like, uh, hey, guys, like none of this stuff happens if the plumbing doesn't work. Exactly. Yes. And having a character that's blunt is the best thing for a writer because you can cut through stuff quickly. <laughs> yeah. Someone walks in the room, what's going on? Salver will tell them in three words. Something wrong. Just a weird feeling. I'm going to walk the perimeter. Well, because that's where the weird feeling's coming from. No, that isn't here. This is just a walk. So if I said, uh, let me get my pants, you'd say? No pants for the next 25 hours. Again, she really feels she. You feel the weight of her responsibilities, whatever those are. She's looking to the defenses. She's up in the middle of the night, seemingly called to the vault. Whether it's her own intuition, whether it's her the concerns about whether she crossed her T's and dotted her eyes, she is up and active and a loner in a lot of interesting ways. Definitely a, a loner and. There's also a sadness to her, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and sometimes the glibness sort of hides that sadness because she feels unique and different than the rest of the people on Terminus. And she doesn't know why. Yeah, I, I, well, I was what I was thinking about when you were talking about is, is the fact that she's a loner means this connection to Hugo is deeper because she has so few people. So you 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 really sense like what a big part of her life Hugo is, even though he isn't always there, uh, and even though you can sense her soul holding him at arm's length, um, you know she 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 wants to banter with him, not throw herself into his arms the second she sees him. There's just a little distance, but you know that's all. She's just protecting herself because she feels so deeply. Hugo is Hugo Crast, uh, played by Dan McPherson, who you know, uh, you understand how people view him because the kids in town can't wait to run up to him when he arrives. What I love about Hugo is he's the guy who gets that space in it is an adventure. For him, what yeah. you know, space is a lot of things to a lot of people, obviously. But to him, it's fun. It yeah. is seeing... Yeah different places, different cultures, trading this here, selling it at market over here. Um, yeah, he ha- got the travel bug yeah. and he never lost yeah. it. How much, I, I, I was thinking about this as uh, as both of you were talking about Salvor. There is the sadness that Hugo is not around a lot, but it also kind of feels like if he was around a lot, maybe it wouldn't work the same way. The, I'm so <laughs> yes. glad that you... You've perceived that because that's what we talked about. We talked about like Salvers. It's hard for her to get close to people. Mm-hmm. And in, in a lot of ways, we've reversed some of their um, – the way Hugo behaves sometimes is the way, you know, stereotypically a female character will behave. He's, he's, he's more outwardly romantic than she is. And Salvers – Sometimes you see these male characters who, you know, don't want to get too attached and they're the ones that get out of bed first and, and, you know, grab their gun. And, and so we talked about that, that reversal, you know, in their relationship. Well, the first time we see him, he's at the stove. Yeah. Um, Cooking. Yeah. There's a man in my house. Yeah. Like literally. (laughs) Yeah. 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 He's, he's like, he might as well have an apron, you know? Yeah. And, uh, 
when she gets up and he's and he's is going to get up with her and he says, "Will you be angry later?" I thought that is such a couple line. It really that was. is the thing about like I'm going to cut through what you're saying right now and anticipate the talk we're going to have later and just make sure that's going to be okay. And I I love that. Well, it's also it's like she gets up to do her rounds, and it's one of those like. You know, should I get up with you? But I'm kind of tired, yeah. and like, uh, I really want you to say no. Don't like, don't deal with the dogs, or don't take out the trash. Oh, it'll be fine. But are you are you sure I'll, it'll be okay? I just love them together. Well, uh, there's a lot of Salvor is a character of action, as you noted, and uh, we see that when the Anacreon ships come into view. Salvor is an outlier. We need to think whether the plan could have possibly predicted- the plan. Sultan's gone. When are any of you gonna start thinking for yourselves? All right, that's enough. We don't need to make this complicated. She's immediately like, where are the rifles? Where is the weaponry? Are we ready for this? Yeah. Uh, Lewis is like, what are you talking about weaponry? We call the Empire. And and <laughs> Hugo's like, no, those are Corvettes. You don't get it. That, that, those, those are, are, war- those those are warships. warships, yeah. That was such a great- uh, again, this this idea of Salvor as present in the moment, getting her hands dirty in a way that a lot of these eggheads are just not ready to do. They're all paralyzed, right? Well, would Harry want us to contact the Empire? Would he not want us to contact the Empire? Would <laughs> yeah. he, would he, should we engage with them? Should we not engage with them? And she's like, dudes, wake up. Like, who cares? He's, he, he's dead. He's not going to help us. Yeah. It, like, we got to do something. And she's blaming herself. I should have checked up on this. Yeah. I'm the warden. I love how much being a warden is her soul. To me, a, a, this, a lot of the theme of this episode, again, is memory. This idea of ghosts as memories that you can't shake. I love the different perspectives on what memory and legacy means from the different characters. There's this great scene uh, on Terminus where... The foundation is discussing um, what equipment to use for future foundation folks, foundation teams as they go out across the galaxy. Um, What should they take with them? What should the protocols be? Let's play that clip. In terms of timekeeping, the water clock is the more precise instrument. Right. But it also requires water to work, doesn't it? Well, obviously. What happens when the water runs out, novice George? For a sundial, all you need is the gnomon. That's the blade sticking out of it. And of course, the sun. Harry Seldon entrusted us with rebuilding civilization after the collapse. We can't assume anything, whether or not our future survivors will be able to read, or what language they'll speak. We don't even know what worlds they'll be scattered upon. I love this scene because it really makes you think about what's worth saving and what's worth carrying forward. I, I, if you hadn't brought up that scene, I was going to bring up that scene. And, uh, even earlier when we were talking about um, how we hack life to, to try to stay present in the future um, by, discuss, by what you mythologize and what you bring with you and what you carry forward. Uh, and I, I love that that's the whole point of foundation is, is this notion of we're going to take stuff now and bring it into the future. Uh, Terminus is, in the books, it is described as a place that lacks resources. They're constantly in shortage of everything. And it is, that's 
what I pictured in my head is this place uh, that you've, I don't know where you shot it, but it's... In Iceland and in Fortaventura in the Canary Islands. It is inhospitable. It looks uh, it looks cold, and then it looks hot. And it then was. It, and then it looks like... Uh, it, it was is, deeply unpleasant and to film. It, and it looks lousy with uh, <laughs> bishop's claws uh, to boot. Yeah, what was... Um, what was it like to film these these scenes? So I was, when we started talking about this show, um, I've worked a lot with Chris Nolan, and he's a big proponent of kind of doing things as much as possible in camera or for real. And and that's definitely my filmmaking style as well. And there are, there are some other big science fiction shows right now that, all, you know, a lot of them essentially get shot on a soundstage or against green screen. And I'm not taking anything away from those because I'm a fan of many of those shows. Mm-hmm. But I I really said I, I want to do as much of this for real. And so with a lot of grumbling, because it's complicated to shoot yeah. in multiple countries, they were like, okay, fine. You can shoot in two countries. And then I was like, secretly, I'm going to make sure we shoot in three. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, then okay, fine. You can shoot in three. No, it's four. No, it's five. Eventually we shot in six different countries for season one immensely complicated even without COVID and I wanted different countries and different landscapes to be kind of stand-ins for these different worlds and I wanted the actors as much as possible and even the filmmakers myself included to sort of a little bit be experiencing those hardships because so that we weren't faking it yeah so we started off in Iceland for Terminus and we were foolish enough to shoot it like in late November uh, in Iceland, (laughs) which was there 80 mile an hour winds. And it was the coldest I've ever been in my life. And it looked amazing. But I was, we were wearing five layers of clothes and one of them was heated and I'm not kidding. And two days were shut down for wind. And and one of our sets blew away. And another day, I'm not kidding, was shut down because we found an unexploded ordinance from World War II in Terminus City. (laughs) And the bomb squad had to come out and blow it up. And and so, you know, we got some incredible (laughs) footage in Iceland. And I loved Iceland. But one and a half out of every five days we shot there wasn't usable because it was like the winds mm. were too crazy or this or that. So we were like, okay, how can we find a place like Iceland that isn't quite so crazy? And so Iceland is volcanic. And we started looking at, well, what are other volcanic environments? And the Canary Islands, which are part of Spain, on the other side of the world are also volcanic. So they've got similar terrain. and They've got these lava fields and this lichen and stuff like that. And we were like, oh, great. And it's not super cold there. So we ended up going to Fortaventura in the Canary Islands. And um, Fortaventura, because I'm an idiot, actually means strong wind. <laughs> and, so, and so it wasn't cold, but, it, but the winds were blowing. And then you would get this insane dust storms that would come over from Africa where, like, literally you couldn't see the sun. And... It would be so windy that like equipment would fall down or people would tumble. And, and so it looks amazing because it was amazing. And every day you would come back from filming and like my wife would see me and I would be covered in this red dust. <laughs> and it would be in my nose and in my throat. And, and there were so many scenes that we had to loop because, because of, the, of the wind. And so, I mean, it was amazing, but man, was it hard. 
I only visited one of the locations. I was working on the Nevers in London, and so yeah, it was very easy for me to come Berlin. over. Yeah, you visited Berlin. Like the cosmopolitan Berlin. <laughs> yes, that should be that should be fun and easy. Uh, but I was picked up at the airport and told, okay, we're going to take you right to set. We're just going to stop at the hotel, drop off your stuff, and then we're going to take you right to the crematorium. So that was my, <laughs> my visit to set was arriving in Germany and being driven to a crematorium. Crematorium oh was where we filmed the trial, which was that, that incredible location with all the white pillars. Yeah. Um, it was gorgeous. It was the best crematorium I've ever been to. <laughs> One of the things I, I've uh, been not been able to stop thinking about since David you said it is that uh, time is a character in this. Um, Jane, what does that what does that mean to you? To time being a character in this story. There are lots of things you can say that would be spoilers, but go on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I guess with those things, a thing like time, where you can you could say character, you could say mm. theme. I think it amounts to the same thing, where it's just a thing you keep in your mind uh, as you're writing, because as a character, it can't speak up for itself. Uh, uh, so you have to keep it in mind that this is present when it's present, um, uh, and and just as you're just as you're picking words. I mean, I write at a very granular level. I'm very interested in. The number of syllables, the rhythm of the mm. line, the 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 choice of between synonyms, um, are, am I avoiding rhyme and repetition, or am I leaning into it? I love all that stuff. And if you just have time in your head, then it's just going to affect how, how you lay those words down, which ones you pick, which metaphor are you going to be using. If you can use a metaphor of distance or a metaphor of time, reach for the time one. Jane is. Um writes the most beautiful dialogue of like any writer I've ever met. She does. Oh, gee, thank you. I'm like the idea guy. She's like the one that makes it sound poetic. Let's move to uh, to Trantor, to the center of the galaxy, galactic core. This is where a, a lot of the stuff about legacy and memory and death is right there front and center. We see uh, Dusk, played by Terrence Mann, wonderful Terrence Mann, longtime Broadway actor, at the end of uh, end of his life and grappling with all that that means. It must be, I can't even describe the feeling that one must have to know that you are not even that special mm. because you're, mm. there's th two other of you right there and right. then a fourth in the tank getting yeah. ready to pop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't be here. You know that. I can't be the first one who wanted to see my youngest self. Which is why we made the rule. I've never heard that song before. Or have I? No wonder the Empire loves you so. I find I cannot quite look on that child as an innocent. Even if Selden wasn't right. There is something unnatural in that. You must go. We call it the short film at, at the beginning of this episode. The like 17 minutes of, um, it's kind of like the life cycle of the butterfly. Mm -hmm. And and I really wanted to kind of interrogate the the sadness of of these clones. This was a big lift for the beginning of this episode because mm -hmm. like we're just going to break format and then for like 17 minutes tell this tone poem about this dying emperor. And 
I said, but I want to show the audience that we can do things like this on this show and that we can get really deep. And I, I just said our job, I remember when we were talking about this story, is our job is to make you feel bad for the emperors and, 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 and make them cry. And then the trick of the short film is you think the short film's about dusk, but it's not. It's about Demerzel. And the real Ooh. sadness is, is that's when we start to peel back the layers of Demerzel is, okay, she's a robot, but she's also doomed again and again and again yeah. to birth these babies, watch them grow up, guide them through lives, and watch them die again, again and again and again and again. And that's really sad. She has that line after she uh, she picks up Dusk, who has uh, collapsed in the hallway after painting a, a special mural and showing fantastic core and upper body strength <laughs> to boot, by the way. <laughs> She's a robot. She, can lift, she can lift like a ton. But she lays him in bed and says yeah. something uh, to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, because you always leave me. Yeah. Um, yeah. It struck me watching this scene how... It's a it's a subtle trick that she has to play. On the one hand, she's got this unbelievably intimate connection, relationship with these three emperors. On the other hand, she has had that same relationship with multiple other emperors. Yes. And, and they all seem at a certain, they reach a certain part of their life where they are consumed with being special to her. Yes. And to stand out yes. amongst the emperors. Well, yeah, because she was around with Cleon the First, the guy right. that started this whole thing. And it's sort of like, I guess the analogy I can come up with, you know, I've been through therapy, right? And so the, like, the therapist's job is to like lean in and listen to you. And, and you want to believe that amongst all the other patients that they speak to, right, you're the special patient. Right. You're the one that moved <laughs> them. Or you're the special student, like, you know, amongst all the hundreds of students that cycle through, yeah. right? And so that's sort of what they want to do is like, I, I know that you were around when he was there, but well, did I move you? Did I move you? And then they're just so desperate in their dying moments to want to feel like, but, but please tell me that even though I'm the 13th one or I'm the 11th one, <laughs> that, that something I did made you will make you remember me in, in a way that was even more fondly. And she says, of course. And then you're like, well, probably not. <laughs> the other thing that we introduced in episode two and that we see, you know, again in episode three is this thing called the Principium. Cleon mm. the first, his body is still there in this sarcophagus, yeah. yes. you know? And so they can go up anytime they want or not. Most of them avoid it and, and look at the preserved body of the guy from whom they were all extracted <laughs> and from whom they will never, you know, their tragedy is they probably will never do anything greater than he did. Right. He presided over the empire at its apex right. and their just this Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox that's sort of riding it down into ruin. Right. He's the just the Justinian, and yes, they are yes. these, the ones that come after. Um, Jane? Yeah. Uh, this this short film at the top of this, like, 
the last thing I would do is go watch like one of those festivals of short films. Like I don't want a short story. I want a, I want a full meal. And yet this thing drew me in. Uh, and, and I just love it. I love every minute of it. I love that it makes me cry. Uh, I love that we don't cut away from it. And yeah, it's got all that in it. It's got loads and layers of meaning and fantastic performance. And it leaves me with an affection for Empire yeah. that makes every scene thereafter, when Empire is being sometimes terrible, I still have this affection, particularly for Dusk, that, that I attribute wisdom to him because I've seen, I've, I've seen these lives. I, I feel like I'm, I've been inside it. Demarzel again is so is like the uh, I, I the weight that she carries and the emotional baggage that she carries having to deal with these men. Jane, like, is she alive? What is? She's obviously very advanced, but like, how do you think about her? You're so this is so interesting because you're so delving into <laughs> conversations that like Jane and I are having like literally yesterday. <laughs> That it's totally spoilery yeah. that we can't go okay. into. But no, 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 no. But okay. she can talk. Yes, she, go for it. I could talk about her general nature, which is that I think the question of life is absolutely mm. irrelevant to her. What What does that mean? Whether if something has, if 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 Demerzel has uh, emotions and and a soul, uh, then what does it matter if she's alive? Um, and I I I think we can say that she she has those or something as indistinguishable from them that it doesn't make a difference. I think Demerzel's alive, and this is all interpretive, mm-hmm. but um, she's not biological life. Right. So I think she right. has a soul, and um, I think she has hopes and she has dreams, and she has as much freedom or not as humans do because we're also a product of our kind of biological programming. Yes, why did they choose her? Why did Cleon the first choose her to, to number one, to preserve her as the last we, of her kind? We are going to answer that story, oh, wow. but not yet. We know what that answer is, and it's really interesting. But, um, I mean, the thing about that I'm hoping people take away from the show is there are lots of questions raised, yeah. right? And lots of interesting avenues w- we can explore. And if we haven't answered a question, there's a reason why we haven't. And the, the primary reason is mm-hmm. because we think it will be more dramatic to reveal it later. Uh, this episode ends with the shocking arrival of the Anacreans on Terminus. Uh, you can't spoil anything, but... Uh, what should we expect that their attitude is? Surely they do not come in peace, right? <laughs> well, to remind people, these were one of the two worlds that Cleon That's right. bombed into submission in episode two. So he he destroyed half of their planet. And they are neighbors to Terminus. And by imperial charter, Terminus and the Foundation are... Um, an extension of empire. They're also, they were banished from the empire in episode two, and they're not allowed to be, so they were, they were cut off, they were embargoed, like North Korea, you know, yeah. or whatever. And they're not allowed to be on Terminus. So their showing up on Terminus is in itself an act of war. And obviously, 
nothing good can come out of it. And so, so you know, all the various people in the foundation are just kind of fretting about what level of bad is this? And and Sal was just saying, it's whatever level of bad you think it is, it's like a layer beyond that. Fantastic episode. Um, okay, another game of Building the Foundation, light speed round questions. Jane, David, are you ready? Definitely not. I guess. Something, something to build upon. You'll be allowed to build your foundation. A foundation. Is that the best you've got? How is Hugo the best-looking 70 or whatever something-year-old guy I've ever seen? What is happening here? Dude, because he spent years in cryosleep. I love that he drops the fact that he's 70 years old and he's just a a hunk of hunk. He really is. Wouldn't you? I would be like, can we set the cryosleep up here? I will yeah. just go to bed in it at eight Every hours night. a night. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, then, right. and then at least add another third to my life, I know. So you mentioned uh, Anacreon, uh, Terminus, and Thespis all being in the same kind of region. And, and also that Hugo, it's revealed in the episode, is from Thespis, Seems which like are the... mortal enemies of the Anacreans. He's got the eyes of a Thespian. Um, which the one li- is lilac-colored eyes. Which one is closer? Which one is closer to Terminus? Oh, dude, I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. I'm not sure we ever figured it out. I will say they share the same sun. Next, we see old Daddy Dusk uh, walk into a light. Is he getting vaporized? Is this a laser? What can you tell us about this? And then, uh, in my mind, I immediately thought of Ash Wednesday and the Catholic tradition. In the world of Foundation, is this where the spreading of the ash on the new... Well, that or from... from you know, the practice in India. I mean, they're not mm. the only ones that came yeah. up with that concept. But yes, that was, the thought was that he would be turned to ash probably by a particle bead. We never really said. And um, there's probably a moment of pain, but it lasts only a second. Demerzel's hand on uh, Dusk's back as she's ushering him towards his fate is is heartbreaking to me. That is sad. Uh, as he turns back one last time to say, Well, oh. th- that's just it because she's being gentle but he's kind of turning back and she's saying, no, dude, you got to walk into the light, man. I mean, I always think w- what would happen if he tried to run? I think Demerzel would have grabbed him and you know she can lift probably a ton yeah. and tossed him into that fire and ashed him. And I think he does it every time. Exactly. I think she knows wow. to put her hand exactly. there because he turns back every She wow. knows to do it. She anticipates it. And then finally, of course, what's in the vault? <laughs> Treasure. Obviously, it's a pocket universe <laughs> that's created by the time trapper. I, I mean, I, I thought that was <laughs> completely self-evident. How did I? Not, how did I miss that? David and Jane, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Respect and thank enjoy you. the peace. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Max Linsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Barry Finkel. Our senior managing producer is Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Ahmed Ali Akbar and Jonathan Shiflett. Darby Maloney is our senior editor. Our composer is Carly Bond. I'm Jason Concepcion. Thanks for listening. See you next time.